0: Well, Mike asked me to just real informally share with you things that might be on my heart in terms of what I think is most needful for a church. Um, You obviously have no obligation to agree with my opinion on these things, but if I give you something to mull over and pray about, I hope that our time together will be worthwhile. And as he indicated, um, when I get done sharing a few personal comments, I'd be happy to try to address uh, questions on the lectures last night or... Uh, reason I'm here or apologetics, whatever, at least for a little while before I get worn out and then we'll have to call it a night. I want to thank the Harriads for their hospitality. It's really great. And you notice how they think thematically. I think that's just great. See, I'm here to speak on hot potato issues and we had hot potatoes for dinner. I, that's just really super. Okay, so what is the most needful thing for a church? I thought long and hard about this, and I concluded it was a laptop computer for the pastor.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, and Mike, you can you can pay me you can pay me later for that. No, I'm just kidding. All joking aside, um, I'll tell you what the Lord has laid on my heart, and I want to read two letters from Jesus to the church that we find in the Book of Revelation. Um, There are seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor in Revelation. I'll resist the temptation to read all of them and expound them. Some of you know I have quite a few tapes on that subject, so you'd really be here a long time. Tom would fall asleep many times over if I did that. But I do want to share with you um, something that is probably memorable, even if you haven't been diligent (coughs) students of Revelation, from both these letters and, and just tell you how important I think it is. First Revelation 2, beginning at the first verse, the letter that Jesus wrote through John to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, he that walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy toil, and steadfastness, and that thou canst not bear evil men, And didst try them that called themselves apostles, and they are not, and didst find them false? And thou hast steadfastness, and didst bear for my name's sake, and hast not grown weary. But I have this against thee, that thou didst leave thy first love. Remember therefore whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works or else I come to thee, and will remove thy candle stand out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him who is victorious, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." And then the last of the seven letters to these churches in Asia Minor. As you know, is the letter to Laodicea, beginning in chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, and that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. So because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth because thou sayest I am rich and have gotten riches and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art the wretched one and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined by fire that thou mayest become rich and white garments that thou mayest clothe thyself and that the shame of thy nakedness be not made manifest and I salve to anoint thine eyes that thou mayest see. As many as I love I reprove and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. He who is victorious, I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, as I also was victorious and sat down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches." what I think is most needful um, for a congregation, whether it's yours or mine or anybody else's, is probably not what most people who know anything about my teaching ministry, my theological distinctives, the things that I've debated publicly, what I might have a reputation for. Not any of those things uh, that you might expect is what I would share with you. I believe with all my heart these matters. I may be wrong about them and I trust God will give me a tender and teachable heart where I am wrong. Uh, so I'm not in, in any sense telling you, well, I've changed my mind about you know, theonomy or postmillennialism or presuppositional apologetics or something. But I really do believe that that's not the heart of what makes for a successful and a faithful church. It is quite possible to have a church made up of people who have not made up their minds on many of these issues may still be struggling. I didn't come to my convictions in those areas and, and, you know, maybe you'll prove me wrong, but I don't think anybody in this room would say they came to their convictions if you hold these convictions in those areas in a month's time, you know? God works you over and works you over and works you over and and it's like sanctification, hopefully. It's progressive. And um, so it's quite possible that you could have people in a church that are at really different levels in terms of their theological sanctification, and yet you could have a very, very, very successful church. And it's equally possible that you could have a church where every single person holds to those distinctives down to crossing every T the way Dr. Bonson would cross it and have a church that is virtually worthless in the eyes of the Lord. So the key to having... A successful church program isn't completely found in all these theological distinctives. I want to suggest to you, (coughs) uh, along those lines I might add, um, that I have said on a number of occasions, and then it turned out that one of my best friends with whom I now minister in the, the Bayview OPC church in Chula Vista, has said the same thing. We compared notes and we thought that was interesting. We came up with the same thing. Must prove that it's right. (laughs) Not necessarily. But um, we've had people come to our congregations um, who have come because they hold these these distinctives or they think that they hold these distinctives. And they always kind of expect, well, boy, you'll be really happy to have people like us because we're right in tune with you. And I I have said, and I I said to Roger Wagner, my friend, and he said as well to me, I would much rather have a person who shares a very different theology and needs to grow up theologically but has a teachable heart than to have any of these people who share Reconstructionist distinctives and don't know anything of the fruit of the Spirit. If you have to choose between the two, of course, in a perfect world we wouldn't have to choose, but if you have to choose between those two in this world, give me a teachable heart. Don't give me the person who thinks he knows his theology and has read all the latest theories and is up on all the, you know, the distinctives and the dialogue and that sort of thing. And yet, you just cannot live with this person in terms of humility, in terms of genuine, um, heartfelt, self-sacrificial love and service to others and things of that nature. Now, I think this is reflected, if God has given me any insight on this, it's reflected in Revelation 2 in the letter the church at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus is commended for its doctrinal precision, to put it very simply. Um, Jesus says in verse 2, I know your works, your toil and steadfastness, and that you can't bear evil men, and that you tried them that call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them false. Now, the church in general in our day doesn't think doctrinal precision is important. Well, but Jesus does. And, he, and especially when you have people who are overbearing and arrogant in their teaching, which there's plenty of in Reconstructionist circles, just to be honest with you. And what the Bible tells us is that God wants a church. He commends a church. Jesus is, is pleased with the church that tries those that are false teachers. You shouldn't bear with false doctrine. Okay, so that's all good. However, uh, in my own denomination, uh, which has for years had a reputation for doctrinal precision, I think we can see that that is a necessary condition for a faithful church. It's not at all a sufficient condition because you can have a heart for doctrinal precision and still not love the Lord. you may find that hard to believe so how can that happen well it does that's the perversity of sin that that people can be scholars with respect to the teaching of god's word Uh, i'm not in the slightest sympathetic to the distinctness of Karl bart's teaching for those of you who don't know that name he's the father of neo-orthodox theology but as a scholar i have to tell you Karl Barth knew a lot I mean he, he just he had mastered volumes of dogma and exegesis and so forth and he had written a lot. I mean, he was quite uh an accomplished Bible scholar. After he passed away, we found out that he had been carrying on an affair for any number of years with his secretary. But here's a man who's got all the Bible smarts, if you will, and yet an immoral life. And see? And so it is important that we have doctrinal precision. And Jesus says so. He goes, I commend you. You don't let false teachers get away with this nonsense. Good for you. But you know what Jesus says to the church of Ephesus? He says, this is what I have against you. And those words alone ought to make us weep that Jesus should ever say to his congregations, this is what I have against you. We want Jesus to have anything against us. In these seven letters, by the way, it's only one church that escapes that condemnation, the church at Smyrna. You read it over and over again. It's so unusual, because if you studied it, the pattern is so clear, but only Smyrna escapes that kind of discussion. Jesus says, I have this against you. And Jesus says to all the churches, minus this one I've mentioned, he says to all the churches, I have this against you, and you must repent. You must repent. Now, what does that tell us about a church? It's going to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus. It's not made up of people who see repentance as the initial ticket that gets them into the kingdom of God, and then you put aside that lifestyle and that mindset of repentance. It's a church that understands that repentance is a daily affair for us, that we are never fully pleasing to God. We must always humble ourselves in His sight. And on top of it, I mean, repentance is not preached as an individual activity or virtue in the Christian church generally, but it's supposed to be corporate repentance. The church should be on its knees asking God's forgiveness for how it falls short. And here's how Ephesus, the doctrinally precise church, fell short. But I have this against thee, that you did leave your first love. I doubt that anybody here in the room tonight would say, you know, the way I was enthusiastic for the Lord after I was converted, I have maintained that, and I've done nothing but grow in terms of intensity and the breadth of my love and the consistency of my devotion since that day. It's a depressing thing, isn't it? I'll be the first to hold up my hand and plead guilty. depressing thing to say, you know, I can remember times way back before I knew so much theology even. I just felt I was really much closer to the Lord and much more on fire for him and much more enthusiastic than I am days now." And this is what Jesus is referring to. He says, This is what I have against you. For all your doctrinal precision, you've stopped loving me the way you used to. One, uh, I forget which one, one modern translation puts this verse um, very well. It's a bit of a paraphrase, but it does it gets the idea. Jesus doesn't mean you've lost your first love in that I was the object of your love and you've lost me. He means you don't love the way you did at the first. How can that be for any of us who are Christians? How can that be for a congregation that it loved Jesus at this level at the first and now it's down here? He says, that's what I have against you. Is that you've lost your devotion to me remember, therefore, whence you are fallen, and repent, and do the first works. You see, that, su- that supports that paraphrase I was giving you. Do the works that you did at first. Serve me and love me and show that intensity of devotion that you did at the beginning. We, uh, all of us who are pastors in this room have probably preached about, you know, moving on in Christian life, moving ahead, not falling back. Well, but you see, when the church is in bad spiritual condition, Jesus tells you, fall back. Fall back to where you were, which doesn't mean falling down. It means falling up, right? He goes, get back up to where you started and then build from that point, of course. But the point here is, it may be that what this congregation Uh needs is really to do some heartfelt self-examination about whether you love the Lord the way you did it first. this is tough but Jesus says remember from where you've fallen repent and do your first works or else I will come to you and in coming he says I'll take your candle stand away now I'm not going to po- bother to get personal and give details here tonight but in this room I know enough of you and uh, I'm sure you know enough stories about other churches, you could probably make a list and detail some of the conditions and circumstances under which a church has been destroyed by its failure to have that humble attitude of repentance and getting back to its first love. All right? Jesus doesn't lie here. He removes the testimony of churches that will not pay attention to what he's saying. And as important as doctrinal precision is, Jesus you know, is much more concerned here in Ephesus with this matter of a failure to have heartfelt devotion. Now, the church at Laodicea had a similar kind of problem. The church at Laodicea has the miserable distinction of not being commended by the Lord. This pattern of uh, the seven letters is there except that Smyrna is not criticized Laodicea is not commended. So Jesus launches right into, this is what I have against you. He says, I know your works, and here's how I would evaluate them. They're neither cold nor hot, but I would that they were cold or hot. So because they aren't cold or hot, they're rather lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. That's a really ugly image. Can you imagine that, that Jesus has such an attitude toward a congregation that he says, you sicken me, and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And so, if you cannot, as a congregation, repent and have humility before the Lord and serve him with that fervency and devotion of your first love, if you become complacent as a congregation, then what you should expect is that your candle stand will be removed and Jesus will spit you out of his mouth. Yeah, I know that's not the upbeat kind of stuff we hear in the church growth movement and all that, but it is what the Bible says. What I think is most needful for a congregation is that we learn to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourself. Now you're thinking, you came all the way from California to tell us that? We know that. Well, do you? Do you know that? in the biblical sense of knowing it. You know, from the biblical standpoint, to know something about God is not just to have the ability to give the answer on a piece of paper, if you will. So I give you a quiz. What is the first duty of man, you know? What is the highest, what is the most important commandment? Well, you may be able to give the answer, but you know, if you're not living in that way, then in, in the biblical sense, you don't understand the truth. To understand the truth is to live in the truth, not just to mouth it. I sometimes use the illustration of uh, imagine one of my children, now they're all grown, but imagine one of my children coming to me when they were younger and saying, Daddy, Daddy, I know how to count by twos. I say, really? What is it to count by twos? And my son tells me, you know, and gives me maybe even the math theory behind it, but let, in child's language he says, well, it's kind of like leapfrogging every other number. I said, well, that's really wonderful. And then I say, count by twos for daddy. And my child goes, two, four, five, nine, twelve. I say, but now what did you tell me counting by twos is? Well, it's leapfrogging the numbers. One number gets skipped and then the... I say, okay, well now count by twos for me. And then you get the same, you know, string that is mistaken. Now in that situation I ask you, did my child know how to count by twos? Kind of tough, isn't it? The child knows the answer as to what counting by twos means, but the child's not able to count by twos. And I would say the child is beginning to understand but does not understand what it means to count by twos. You can give the theory, but you can't walk it in practice. You don't understand what you're talking about yet. And so you may understand that the most important thing for a church is to love the Lord Jesus Christ with a humble, fervent love that never becomes complacent, never plateaus. But if you're counting by twos the way I just illustrated in the case of my children, if you're not walking that way, if this congregation is not growing in its devotion, then you really don't understand what I'm talking about. And I'm glad that I shared it with you, even though it may be bringing coals to Newcastle. And they say, well, how do we know whether we're living this way? Well, I think there are some very practical tests of it. Um, I can't touch on all of them, but um, uh, in an unsystematic, unrepresentative way, let me suggest a few points that you as a congregation may want to think about. Do you serve each other self-sacrificially? See, if you love the Lord Jesus with that kind of devotion, then there's no way that you cannot share that kind of love and lifestyle with your fellow believers. That's what the Bible says. In fact, it's so strong about that that (coughs) the Bible says that if you claim to love your brother but you don't do the things that love calls for then don't say that you love God because you're a liar and Jesus says that if you want to go and worship God and you can't work out your problems with your brother he says leave your gift at the altar God doesn't want your worship and he doesn't want you claiming to love him and so one of the tests of our devotion to the Lord Jesus is whether he's given us humble servants hearts toward one another Will we wash each other's feet? In our culture, I realize there's no need to wash each other's feet, but um, you probably can understand the kind of menial and, uh, and humble service that that represents by way of illustration. Are we willing to die for one another? Seriously. Are we willing to die for one another? John tells us that Jesus set an example for us, and this is the way we're to love one another. Since he gave his life for us, we need to be willing to give our life for one another. Now, maybe you're, at this point, going through something in your mind by way of imagination, thinking under what circumstances I would die for people in this church. And my guess is you're probably thinking of something that's really so interesting and dramatic that maybe we could make a movie out of it. (laughs) <laughs> but you know, the real, the real test of that self-sacrificial love is not in those high-profile dramatic moments where we all can be the hero. It's in those situations where no one's even going to know. And maybe no one's even going to care or appreciate what you're doing. Now, if you have that kind of humble servant attitude toward each other, that means you need to know each other means you need to be part of each other's lives, not on Sunday morning, but all through the week. This is not the be-all and end-all, don't get me wrong, but let me just ask, do you, have a, um, do you have a notebook or a piece of paper or some device whereby you keep track of prayer requests for people in the church so that when you pray every day you can pray for your brothers and sisters? If you don't, uh, maybe you have a better memory than me, so forgive me if my illustration's skewed. But if you don't, my guess is you don't really care that much about other people. It's good to tell them on Sunday, I'll pray for you, or to listen and and show some kind of sympathy. But after that, you go about and you live your own life. Have you ever had an occasion where you thought, this week I'm not going to be able to get as much done as I thought because these friends of mine need so much more prayer? That is far more important well in my eyes which doesn't count a lot but I think in the Lord's eyes I think that kind of attitude is far more important than whether you read a book and get the next Reconstructionist distinctive down I'd like you to do both but if you're going to choose choose to get back to your first love to have that kind of devotion for Jesus that non-complacent attitude that will lead you to love your brothers as yourselves and even to give your lives for one another and if you would give your life for your brother or your sister, then does it make any sense that you would give less than that to your brother or your sister? I sometimes think, maybe I'm perverse, but I sometimes think it would be easier to die than to do some of the things that I'm supposed to do to care for my brothers and sisters, you know, because it's just so grungy and it's so depressing and it's whatever. So do you love each other this way? You care for each other. If you do, then as a congregation, you need to have an attitude where it will be impossible for there ever to be a church split. And I've seen some of the best, and for reasons that would take us way beyond what you need to know and what's relevant to what I'm telling you tonight a congregation that I worked with for ten years, eleven years, and were taught these things and did well until some other influences came in. Even I, I would have thought these men that I've trained could never make the mistakes that they made, but they do. So none of us can think that we're, you know, above reproach or above temptation so forth. But if you would keep your church from ever having internal difficulties that lead to a split, it's only going to be because you have that attitude, one, toward Jesus, that you love him with the fervency with which you first loved, and secondly, a self-sacrificial attitude toward one another. Because if you have a self-sacrificial attitude toward one another, you cannot refuse reconciliation. You cannot refuse, in your humility, to find a way that there will be peace between you. But that doesn't come natural to us. We don't automatically fall into these modes of reconciliation. So the Bible shows us how we need to be reconciled to one another. And one of the things it tells us in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, is don't ever let the sun go down on your wrath. I can't think, and those of you who have pastoral experience, uh, I'd ask you if, if you would agree with this. I can't think of a situation where I've seen two brothers or two sisters or a mixture of them or a marriage or a church situation end up in division where you didn't have a build-up over some period of time of resentment and grudges. I have never, ever, ever seen a marriage. I've never seen a church situation. I've never seen friends so far get to the place where they can't be reconciled when they practice daily clearing the record, daily clearing the record. Never, ever go to bed upset with somebody in this church ever. You'll start making exceptions and in a few weeks you'll say, oh yeah, well, we tried that. I mean it. If you practice that, I think I have biblical warrant for this, you'll never be at war with each other. You need to learn to clear the record every day. Now, that doesn't mean you should become such a censorious busybody kind of person that you're on the phone every day saying, you know what I don't like about you? Ephesians 4 that tells us not to let the sun go down on our wrath also tells us the kind of attitude we have to have toward one another. It says in verse 25, wherefore putting away falsehood, speak truth each one with his neighbor for we are members of one another. That's why we have to be you know, straight up with one another. We belong to each other. We're members of one another. It says be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. And Satan's most effective Well, maybe I'm not in a position to say what is the most effective, but certainly one of the highest effective tools that Satan has is to take our pious intentions, which are really masking bad activity, and let those intentions, because they're pious, keep us from seeing what we're doing wrong. Don't give place to the devil. I'm going to skip a verse here. Let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth but such as is good for edifying as the need may be that it may give grace to them that hear. So when you call somebody or you go and talk to somebody uh, that you have some problem with, you need to speak in such a way that it will not tear them down but build them up. But we're not inclined to do that because we think when I have to approach somebody, they've done something wrong. So if they've done something wrong and they're guilty, then they deserve to be torn down. If you have a Christ-like attitude, when you approach somebody who has wronged you, you approach them to build them up, not tear them down. And so you don't let corrupting speech, corrupt speech, proceed out of your mouth. You need to speak in such a way that you give grace to them that hear. And so you approach the brother or sister that you're unhappy with in such a way that you will, pardon me for the pop psychology vocabulary, but you empower them, you give grace to them to do what is right. You approach them in such a way that it makes it possible for them to see their error and want to repent. I'm convinced with all my heart, from my experience, that in the vast majority of cases where it has gone wrong, the people who were approaching one another did so in such a manner that the other party wanted to be defensive, not repentant. And once you create a defensive spirit at the other end of the line, you know, you're going to get something back from that end of the line that's going to do what to you? It's going to make you defensive. And you're thinking, here, I'm trying to do the biblical thing. I'm trying to approach people the way Jesus wants me to. And I'm getting this kind of guff from you? Did you say guff? Did you think I was giving you guff? I was just trying to be honest. And then you get, you know, the verses are raising and so forth and it's getting this intensity. And Paul says, no, don't let corrupt speech proceed from your mouth, but such as is good for edifying, as the need may be, that it may give grace to them that hear and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. You ever notice the context for that command, don't grieve the Holy Spirit? I've heard it used in a lot of different places and maybe by analogy it's right to use it, but the way in which we grieve the Spirit is the way we talk to each other. Imagine that the Holy Spirit, to use a human metaphor, has a broken heart, is grieved when we don't speak to each other charitably, humbly, in an edifying way to empower each other, to give grace to one another, to do the right thing. Verse 31 follows it up. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and railing be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other even as God also in Christ forgave you. If you want to be a successful church, return to your first love and that intensity of devotion you had to the Lord Jesus earlier on in your Christian experience, or maybe earlier on even in your congregational experience. And out of your love for the Lord, you need to develop such a love for one another that it's impossible that you would go one day without a reconciled relationship. You can trust me on this. If you do that, this church will never have internal problems. Developing the attitude of forgiveness. You know, if you forgive somebody, you can't keep score. I've, I've had to forgive people who are my friends. And if you were to ask me the question, did you have to forgive them more times than they had to forgive you? If I can give an answer to that question, then I haven't forgiven the way the Bible says to forgive. Want me to say that again? Just is see, my friendship to someone else doesn't have anything to do with whether I've forgiven more or they've forgiven more because when you forgive, you forget. It means I don't bring it to mind anymore. I live with you as though it had never happened. Isn't that what justification is? God treating us as if we had never sinned? Just as if we had never sinned? And this says here, we are to forgive one another even as God also in Christ forgave you. And so God's forgiveness is the model for our living with one another. That's why in the Lord's Prayer we say, forgive us our debts as what? As we forgive our debtors. Would anybody like to have that taken literally on the day of judgment? God says, I'm going to forgive you in the way that you forgave other people. Man, that's frightening, isn't it? So in this church, if you want to really demonstrate a love for the Lord Jesus, then demonstrate the love the Lord Jesus had. Learn to forgive the way he forgives. That's what Paul tells us here. That's really what I would share with you if you want to get ahead as a congregation. Now, if you want to be successful in terms of your outreach, if you want to... um, I think I want to say it this way. If you do have this fervency of devotion for the Lord Jesus and never become complacent and you do meet that necessary qualification of apostolic doctrine. Not sufficient by itself, but necessary that you have good doctrine. If you have good doctrine, and you live the lifestyle that I'm talking about, I'll be bold enough to suggest that it's virtually impossible that you fail to grow. Virtually impossible. I'm in an awkward situation, to use my church background as an illustration. Mike wanted me to speak from that experience, but it can sound like, you know, we come and we say, you know, I have so many brownie points here because look at these good things. And I really despise it when people do that, and I hope you'll believe me that in all humility I'm not doing that when I tell you this. But um, one church that I pastored in Orange County, where I came from, Uh, grew. In fact, I think for a couple years we had the fastest growth rate in the entire denomination. I'm not sure somebody reported that, but certainly in our presbytery. And that church never had a full-time pastor. How's that possible? How's that possible? We didn't have a lot of programs for growth. A lot of... we had some, but not a lot. We were not, you know, like a James Kennedy church with, you know, evangelism explosion and all kinds of teams going out and so forth. That's fine, but we just didn't have the resources for that. And we didn't even have money enough to pay me to be the pastor full-time. I always had to have an outside job. And yet we grew and grew and grew. And I maintained that the reason we did is, first of all, is because when people came to our church, we had answers that were not worldly answers. Can I explain that? The problem most churches have is that they don't want to be that much different from the world. They're afraid if they're real different from the world, people won't want them. You know, they've, they've got to kind of integrate into our culture. And so we don't want to have any great antithesis. Well, maybe we were young and brash and didn't know what we were doing, but it turned out to be, I think, to God's favor that we said, we don't want to be like all those other churches. We can't compete with them anyway. We don't have a great facility. We don't have all these programs. We don't have all this money and so forth. But what we do have, we'll give. And we had answers. And we found that people came and they and they said, well... That's my second point. Let me skip that. People came and they weren't bothered by the smallness of the group. They said, we just, we grow so much here. There really is a thirst to know the Word of God out there, among God's people anyway, and genuine converts. But then secondly, on that point of being a small congregation, um, I can only remember in 11 years having three families say, you're too small for us. But having any number of families that I was... uh, I'd say, I know you come from a very big church. This is unusual. They said, oh, we just love this church because it's like a family. And you love each other. And we were spread all over Orange County. And people would comment. They said, you know each other so well. You keep up with each other. And so I really believe, if I can share this with you, is your congregation is about the size of a chapel work that I'm working with now in Orange County. Um, And they don't even have a part-time pastor. I'm only their pulpit supply when I'm in town. And they keep growing. They keep growing. And I'm hearing the same things there. And that is, one, the preaching has substance. It has answers for people, and we want that. We don't want this milky stuff anymore. And secondly, this congregation loves each other. So, I think that if you will, um, if you listen to this personal advice that I've shared with you tonight, you will grow. And if you don't, then I think you need to do some serious self-examination and say, where are we falling short? Because Jesus says that if you repent and do these things that we're talking about, he'll make you to sit down on his throne. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? Jesus says, you're going to rule over the nations like I do. In fact, you're going to rule with me over the nations. That's the kind of victory and authority that he's going to give to his church when it does the right thing. On the other hand, he says, If you don't do these things, I'll take away your candle stand and spit you out of my mouth. That's kind of a downer note to end on, I'm sorry. But if your congregation doesn't grow, you may want to ask yourself, is Jesus getting ready to spit? Do we need to repent and learn that humility and deep devotion to Him and self-sacrificial love for each other that the Bible assures us will make us not only a pleasure to God when we worship but also desirable among the people in this world because you'll have what they're looking for yeah I I think that it's appropriate to have a full-time pastor and I can see why my questions I mean my comments might have led to that kind of question but on the other hand I want to make the point that you don't have to have that in order to have a successful church now part of my answer is going to presuppose some background that I can't lay again, and so I, I'm not sure how much you'll be familiar with Presbyterian ways, but if a church has been functioning according to the biblical model, then you have elders who are leaders in the congregation. So, um, well, I'll use personal illustration. Um When I got ready for my second open heart surgery, I knew that, you know, the chances of survival, though were fairly good the second, are nevertheless lower than the first time around, and then third they drop a lot, and so forth. And the last sermon that I preached to my congregation before I went into the hospital for the surgery was entitled, The Dispensability of the Pastor. So from a biblical standpoint, of course, they loved me enough that they wanted to argue with me and say, no, no, you're not dispensable, and so forth. But what I said was true from a biblical standpoint, even Paul said, you know, it'd be better for me, but then for your sake, you know, maybe I need to stay and serve the church. But if Paul were taken out of the way, and he was, the church continued, didn't it? Pastors are dispensable because they're not popes. This is a Presbyterian point. It's something that we take from our heritage. If the church has been governed by a body of elders, then you can take one out of there and you still have leadership, don't you? And so um, I think a church that doesn't have a pastor does need to have leadership, but I don't think it's Popish leadership. I think it's leadership held in a college of elders. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, John tells us we have an anointing from God such that we have no need that anyone teach us. Now, if you just looked at that verse, you could draw the conclusion, since we have the Holy Spirit to lead us and we don't need, we don't, in an absolute sense, have any need for human teachers. We can understand, with the Holy Spirit's illumination, the word of God, that therefore it's wrong to have teachers in the church. But on the other hand, the Bible teaches us that teachers are a gift to the church. And so we have to put both of those together and say teachers are not absolutely necessary, but they're certainly beneficial, and you wouldn't want to turn away from having them if you could. So maybe I'm saying the same thing about pastors. I think pastors are dispensable, but I think that they're a gift to the church, and if you have one, it's to your advantage. Yeah. This
1: is a similar related question. I'm Pastor a leader from a biblical standpoint, how,
0: how would you answer that? Well, we read the answer to that already tonight. I mean, one answer and. And the letters to the seven churches, each of them is addressed to the pastor of the church, to the angel, which means the messenger, to the messenger of the church at Ephesus, to the messenger of the church at Laodicea. And it says, the angel. So having a pastor is not contrary to the biblical model, but in fact fits into the biblical model. Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus for a while. We know that. Paul sent Timothy to Philippi to help the church there. And so we have biblical, you know, background and warrant for the idea of a single man being the pastor. But in none of those cases do we have any uh, warrant for the idea that he was a one-man show.
1: What distinguishes the pastor from the elders, biblically?
0: 1 uh, Timothy 5, I think verse 18, is um, maybe the most direct way to answer that question. verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, uh, namely those who labor in the Word and in teaching. So there's double honor given to a particular kind of elder. Now I don't think it makes a different office, and we can get into all the refinements of that in Presbyterian theory. I believe it's the same office with a difference in function or uh, of, of labor. And those who labor or rule well, which is defined as um, laboring in the word and in teaching, are to be given double honor. And I may be dropping a bomb on the playground here to tell you this, but I taught the first church that I founded, I taught them that if you believe that the teaching elder is to be given double honor, you know what double honor means here? I bet some of you do. Honor is the English translation. It means what? Double pay. Double pay. That's right. And I said, frankly, I'm not going to be very happy if you don't pay your ruling elders anything then. Because you know what two times zero is? (laughs) And so not only do, I mean, this is my personal conviction. It's not held, I don't think it's held widely even in my denomination but there are a number of us who would say this. Uh, My conviction is that um, all the elders of the church ought to be remunerated. Double here does not need to be taken with mathematical exactitude. I'm just talking about the Greek word itself, not trying to, you know, do any gymnastics to get out of an awkward situation. But it is appropriate that all elders be remunerated, and those who are the teaching are preaching elders, that those who do most of the exhortation from the pulpit, they should be paid even more generously by the congregation. So does that help at all to distinguish the two? Yes, it does. Okay. I was saying that it's important that all the elders have a parity, be on the same level with each other in terms of authority rather than moving in the direction of having one elder be the kind of top dog. And uh, the best proof of that, in my way of thinking, is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter says, the elders therefore among you I exhort, (coughs) who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I can just see our Romanist friends pulling their hair out. No, 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 Peter, you're not a fellow elder, you're
1: the Pope.
0: Don't put yourself down on their level. But that's exactly what Peter does. He has apostolic prerogative. He doesn't have papal prerogative, but Roman Catholic. he doesn't have that, but he does have apostolic prerogative and he says that he is an elder, a fellow elder. And so if even the apostles put themselves on the same level with the elders in the early Christian church, then I think we have pretty good warrant for saying no elder stands above other elders. They all have a parity in the church. That doesn't mean they have all the same function. Some rule and some rule well because they also have a predominant preaching or teaching ministry. But they all have the same office. There aren't two offices, only one. That's my opinion. Other people see it differently. But Another question? Okay.
1: You've commented a few times on the biblical model, the spiritual model, the Connection that you have with your denomination.
0: Right. uh, Super. Uh,
1: I haven't heard any comments on other uh, functions in the local church. I'll just throw out one, not for any particular reason. And that is uh, where do you draw the line or the distinction between uh, getting the word out in the public versus in another context? What a lot of people would refer to as uh, biblical counseling, meeting the needs of the saints in uh, some sense of the word. How do you delineate that? And mm-hmm. have you two
0: comments in that direction? Well, my my own conviction is that the Bible teaches that all of God's children are able to admonish, and that they should be trained to do that, so that it's it's not a healthy situation when a church thinks all the counseling needs to be done by the pastor. Or even, I mean this is much better, but even this is not fully biblical, all the counseling should be done by the pastor and the elders. Uh, from a biblical standpoint, we should be able to counsel one another. okay? But I also think it's part of the uh, duty of the pastor and of the elders to shepherd the sheep and, and to do counseling service in that way. So I, I, I think it exists on two levels. It's everyone's job but it's especially the duty of those who are leaders of the church, the shepherds of the of the church.
1: Who has an obvious follow-up in this role or uh, members of the congregation? Do you have any thoughts or comments on how that would be uh, structured or implemented?
0: Well, I think those who do it the best, and for that reason, are leaders in the church need to be training people to to handle counseling situations. That doesn't mean they all have to have an office and hang out a shingle saying Christian counselor, but we need to train people in our families and then in our interpersonal relationships and so forth in our work with one another in the church to admonish, to encourage those who are discouraged and to uh, show people who are wandering out of the way how to get back in the Lord's will and things like that. So the the elders and the pastor have to be trainers. They need to build up the body of Christ and equip all the saints for service that's enough okay you've already taken an hour of armchair preaching from me I could take another hour and preach on on this point you know about uh about all of you being equipped for service that's what the uh, leaders of this church need to do is equip you to be ministers that doesn't mean you all have to be buying for michael's position, or what might be Michael's position if you choose to call him as your pastor. But it does mean that if he's doing his job and the elders here do their job, they're going to be turning you into more effective ministers so that you all are doing the work of the Lord. Since we have gone an hour, can I suggest we take maybe a three-minute stretch? I need to use the restroom anyway. (laughs) And uh, then when we come back, I'd be glad to take another half hour or so um, maybe a few more minutes or less, whatever you want, and talk about, in general, uh, theological, ethical, apologetical questions Is that, acceptable to you. Yeah, we Come back. Real hard questions. <laughs> okay. Okay, uh, please jump in at any point. Anything you'd like to ask? I can't answer just anything, but if it's in a subject that I know anything about, I'll try.
1: I have a, a question about what you were talking about. Can you, I mean, you feel like the, if a faithful church would not continue to be small.
0: Can you right. What I think... I don't have any percentage of growth that you can expect. I think circumstances are going to dictate that and it's going to be different. Um, And I wouldn't want to say that in some very extreme circumstance you couldn't have a church that was being faithful and loving that didn't grow, but I would say that's not the norm. In the same way you can have a child who doesn't in fact grow, but we all know that that when you have a child that isn't growing that there's something abnormal. So it's possible to be alive and to be a true church and because of bizarre circumstances you wouldn't grow but I think that is not the pattern at all yeah there, there should be one there should be a desire on the part of those who are in the church to invite their friends and family and colleagues and neighbors and so forth and um, I don't know in reform circles I may be overgeneralizing, but in reform circles it seems we're not as evangelistic as other people are as we, we hardly even give it a shot. It's like, well, we know they aren't interested. In, you know, we have we have hard doctrine. and Give it a shot, you know? And I've found, like I've talked about, the two churches I've been associated with growing even without a whole lot of effort, that's usually the way it happens because we don't have any big programs. It's just that people will say, well, come visit our church. Then people come and they say, wow, this is interesting. I mean, every once in a while people will say, don't like those guys, but... Um, if you got if you got a, a loving church, and a decent message, I think it's almost inevitable you're going to grow. The world doesn't have anything to compete with that. Did I convince you all about pornography last night? How
1: about drug legalization? Go ahead. Um, you you spoke in favor of drug legalization, and um, given that. Uh, Our society, our government, perhaps doesn't punish people the way the Bible would have us punish people for murder, perhaps theft. Right. Uh, Would you have? Would that give you any more hesitation about being in favor of a law to legalize drugs without perhaps
0: tighter punishment? You know, the question is, if the government's not going to follow the biblical prescriptions for penalties. Uh, would that give me any hesitation in terms of my endorsement of the legalization of drugs? And I can understand what lies behind the question. It's a thoughtful question. I, I'm not going to agree with what lies behind it, but uh, or where it's going, I should say. But what lies behind it is, you know, the Bible presents to us um, a view of society... well, how can I put it? It's not like loose marbles. You know, you have this little nugget and this little nugget, this little nugget, and the more you have, you know, the bigger your bag of marbles and the better it is. There's an integration between these things that the Bible requires in society. And when one of those things that's integrated or networked with other things is not there, that may give us reason to, um, to hesitate to affirm other aspects of the biblical model. So I understand why you might ask but I have to disagree ultimately that that we should pull back because if we do what will happen is we give justification for not doing anything the Bible requires until we do everything the Bible requires and that means we'll never do anything because we're gonna fall short it's gonna be little by little line upon line reform upon reform and so I don't know where God is going to break the cycle that we're now in um, But I I have to, when I teach, or you have to, when you're a Christian, presenting the Christian view, I think we have to tell the truth along the line and say, I'm going to take as much as the Lord will give. And if the the Lord would bless this country with a government that will back off of its monstrous, over-bloated intention to run our lives, which is to say it would butt out of drugs and pornography and drinking and these sorts of things, and that's the first place, I'm not going to say, oh, no, don't do it because we aren't executing murderers and rapists the way we're supposed to. I'd say, well, I want to see all that done, but uh, it doesn't ever help us to give the government, even under pious intention, more power than it has coming. I know this is a platitude, but it really is a good one. You know, power corrupts, and absolute power absolutely corrupts. And so I don't want uh, a big government I don't want the government telling people what they can read. I mean, I'd like to tell people what they can read. I and mean, we'd all like to have that kind of authority, right? And, and I assure you, just so you won't take away the wrong impression from what I said last night, if I could tell people what to read, there would be no pornography. You know, there is no healthy reason for that kind of thing, so... But I think that the way pornography has to be suppressed is through the disciplining agency of the home, the marketplace, the church, and so forth. It's not something God's given to the state to do. And the minute you give the state that prerogative, then it it grows beyond that, doesn't it, to other things. And the day will come when the state will tell us we don't want people reading the Bible. And then what do we say? Now we don't want to begin down that road. The argument against the state's involvement in drugs or pornography or what have you is the same argument that we use with respect to prohibition. God did not give it to the state to punish drunkenness or to try to get people not to drink. And we had a, a little social experiment in this country where the state tried to do it. Now what would you all say? How did it turn out? It was a hypocritical failure. It was just terrible. And it, it, what it did is it took the worst elements of society and made them rich because they were the bootleggers and they were willing to defy the government. It made people sick through bad gin and rum and so forth. And it was a miserable failure, and made people disrespect the law all the more. I mean, overall, here was an attempt to do what appeared outwardly a godly thing, and had nothing but ungodly consequences. Well, that's what happens when you give the state power that God doesn't give it, in my opinion. Go ahead. Give another
1: shot. Here. I question. Um, if I were to uh, gently summarize what you were saying last night as a doctrinal statement of what should be done and, and just using that as a way of leading into the question. And that begs the question of some of the mechanics of how to do it. Let me try to focus on a particular subject. What would you say is a reasonable approach, approach based on our understanding and experience to motivate uh, Christians? are hearing believers in the direction of uh, secular service in the sense of state government or national government, and to kind of prime the pump, what about the issue of some of the very practical, very large expenses that an individual seeking public office today would incur to get into that position to legitimately run to some degree or probability of success. Yeah. am no. emphasizing, contrasting last night, mm-hmm. what versus how's. Right. Can you comment on it.
0: Yeah. The question is, how do we get Christians in positions where we can reform the government along the lines we were talking about last night, um, and especially in light of the uh, just huge sums of money necessary to to uh, have an effective campaign. Well, first of all, I think we have to reduce the cost of getting elected. And how would you do that? I'm not suggesting election uh, reform so forth, but the way in which you reduce the cost of getting elected is by making sure that among those who are voting you have more people that are already uh, on the boat with you. So you don't have to do a lot of schmoozing and a lot of you know, uh, campaigning to convince people to come that way. And so, then you say, okay, Dr. Bonson, how do we get more people in this society prepared to vote for a Christian politician? Well, You've got to evangelize. And then you have to nurture. And so, uh, in my opinion, it could be wrong, but in my opinion, we're not going to see great political reform until we see reform in the church. See, the church has got to do its job. And then when you have enough Christians, or not just converted, you know, a lot of converted Christians haven't thought through the social theory, you know, worth a... Two cents, but they've been nurtured to think in a Christian way about political issues, then they are so fed up with abortion or whatever it is out there that's bothering them that they say, we've got to get godly men. And then when they run, they won't need big war chests because they already have, what, at the grassroots level, support where a little bit of campaigning will be enough to get them in office. Um, I think, well, I mean, let me give you something really humorous. Let's take somebody not Dr. Bonson because he has all these other problems, maybe. Uh, but let's just say somebody who holds these views that I've been teaching and we say, we're going to have this person run for office. Wouldn't that be ludicrous right now? Who in his right mind who holds these views would run for office thinking you could do any of this? you got to have a society that's, what, prepared to be led in this way, okay? And generally, although there's an educative function for politicians, generally, that's not where the education is going to get done. You don't elect a guy and then he starts training people to think in this way. They've already got to be trained and raised up to think this way, then they say, he's our man. Um, So when it comes down to it, and this is something that I think Reconstructionists need to be better known for, um, I really believe that political reform comes after ecclesiastical reform. The church has got to start doing its job, and then maybe we can reform society. We need more salt and more light here, in my opinion. Linda? Um,
1: Given that welfare is not the role of government, how um, fruitful do you think efforts by well-meaning Christians are? In trying
0: to reform welfare or education, you know, that sort of thing. Okay, I think that, you know, I'm playing Pope in a sense here, telling people what they ought to do with their lives, but I really think Christians ought not to be involved in reforming the welfare system. Uh, I mean, apart from, if we have Christians that are in office and we can mitigate how much money is going to it and the abuses, yeah, by all means, clean it up if you can. But generally, people in this room, and other congregations, and so forth. I don't think we should be working on reforming the welfare system. I think we ought to be working on competing with it. And it's not until Christians are doing the works of service, taking care of the homeless, taking care of the orphans, taking care of the drug addicts, taking care of the unwashed in our society that we generally don't want to hang out with. It's not until we change our attitudes and start ministering to the down-and-out that we'll be in an effective position to tell society, you don't need the state to be taxing you to death to do this. We do this out of love for the Lord and concern for our neighbors. So I really think the best thing we could be doing is setting up, um, this is not an alternative government, because it's not government, but an alternative system of welfare and demonstrating that it will work, that we can do it without the government playing Messiah. Now how are we going to do that? well, it's going to take a whole lot more money than we have, and where are we going to get that money? Uh, I haven't done all the statistics, but the economists among us tell me, I've read, you know, articles, more than one, on this, that if all the people who named the name of the Lord Jesus tithed, we'd have more money we can do with. Isn't that amazing? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing most of you in this room are tithers and you have a small group that may be struggling financially, so it's hard to hear that news. But you have to remember that there's a lot of people out there that claim to be Christians. And all I'm saying is that if all the people who claim to be Christians gave ten percent, even after you paid your pastor and your elders, there'd be plenty left over to do the work of welfare. Uh, For a group like mine that's small, similar to yours, we probably at first are going to have to band together with other people, I mean other Christians. Um, and so you have maybe four or five congregations that are trying to do welfare work in a community or something because there's not enough there. But the point is, as the church grows, and it will grow, when a cup of cold water is given in Jesus' name, the church is going to grow. People are going to look at that and they're going to be impressed. They always have. When Christians do the kind of things that Jesus calls on us to do, I mean, there will be people who are naysayers, you know, people who ridicule. But generally, Most people look at it and they say, wow, look how they love one another. So we will grow, which means we'll have more money, you know, and more money to take care of more social problems, which means we'll grow more. And so rather than this downward spiral that we're in now, I think that's going to be reversed as the church starts living the way it's supposed to. And I don't think it's going to happen by next month. It's going to take a long time vision. And so not only do we have to preach tithing, and generosity beyond the tithe I think we also need to be preaching an optimistic view of what the kingdom is going to accomplish on earth Because I can teach all these wonderful theories to people and say isn't it a shame though by definition they're all going to fail you know how many people are going to get on board if you do that well if the Bible doesn't give us assurance that they're going to be successful we have no right to preach that they will I mean I can't for commercial purposes preach an optimistic gospel but I don't think I need to be commercial. The Bible plainly teaches that this mustard seed is going to grow and grow and grow. It's going to be a stone that fills the entire earth. And the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So, you see, there is an integration between all these different doctrines. We need to have good theology. We need to have church reform, which means we have, to have proper church government and leadership. We need tithers. And we need an optimistic outlook. And we need people who are going to, I mean, all these things have to be done. It's going to take a while, but I do believe it will happen. Next, another question? Mm, okay. <laughs> do you think it's wrong for a crisis pregnancy center to refer to their clients to um, welfare agencies? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you knew I was going to say that. How could I teach you what I did last but night you know and, cool and say far? other than that?
1: is that, you know, the volunteers, we're not prepared to say, oh, well, you know, we'll give you free medical care or we'll help you to earn the money to get medical care Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. So here's the bad news. That means you can't really be effective. That isn't to say you can't do anything. There will be some women who need your counsel and help and emotional support and evangelistic input and all sorts of things, even if you can't back it up with more concrete goods and services. And so I think you ought to keep it up, but I don't think you should ever refer them to welfare, because then they become slaves of the state. Um, And what, what you're doing, by the way, I was the director of a crisis pregnancy center in Orange County for a number of years, and so I'm familiar with this kind of ministry, but I think often we who have a heart for that sort of thing just have to realize that we've rushed out to battle and we don't have a lot of soldiers. We have a lot of good intentions and God will honor those and we ought to do the best we can. But when we go out there, the fact is the church has not been so convinced that we need to be prepared to take care of these women and to give them an alternative. And if we don't, Uncle Sam will. And guess who they'll be converted to? I mean, humanly speaking. They're going to be more converted to state welfare than they are to to the church. And so I'm sorry Linda, but the fact is you probably are doing a job where you don't have adequate resources to do your job. But do it anyway. Better to do something than nothing. Okay, I can see the look on your face. Wh- what would you like me to say?
1: <laughs> <laughs> if I if, if if I could please you. I mean we tell them, you know. Cuz they have to, what they have to have a verification of pregnancy. Right signed by one of our nurses right? in order to qualify for the welfare. And our nurse signs them and our you know, um, counselors arrange for the forms to be filled out and so forth. Um, but you know, they sort of see it. I mean, I don't think any of those counselors really like to do that. But they sort of see it, well, if we don't help them then they'll okay. go somewhere.
0: Let, let me... I might have it wrong, but let me kind of restructure what you're asking, and I'll give a more positive answer. Okay? It's going to be minimal, but there's <laughs> gonna... are you asking me, Linda, that um, should we be willing to coop, not refer them to welfare agencies, but cooperate with their need to have a um, some kind of verification of their pregnancy, to have some form filled out? Should we be willing to fill out this form that they come to us with? They've initiated their contact with welfare. We haven't referred them. But they come to us, and we do so so that we will have the opportunity to do some counseling and possible evangelism. Is that your question?
1: Well,
0: I could answer that one more favorably. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: but, you know, I mean, they give them the number, too,
0: I wouldn't do that. But if if the price of my getting a captive audience for 20 minutes to do some counseling and encourage a different approach to life, and maybe even getting right with the one who's the source of life, is getting this form filled out for them, which really is just a matter of my testifying to what I know to be true from the test, I think I could swallow that as a Christian. But I, I, I mean, why would I ever advise somebody to go to a prostitute? I mean, You can give me all the bizarre marriage counseling situations in the world, I still won't tell people that are having a dysfunctional relation in their marriage, visit the prostitute. And I know that's kind of a harsh analogy, but I don't think we should send pregnant women to the state. That's like sending people having trouble in their marriage to prostitutes. The state doesn't have any right to be doing this. Oh, I'm sorry. There was a hand over here, and I'd forgotten to come back to you.
1: I was just going to ask you to expand a little bit on the question of pornography. I got to thinking about it last night after you first brought it up. And uh, it seems to me that there are uh, at least some people who are involved in pornography that are indeed uh, uh, worthy of death. uh I agree. The capital that
0: they in the process That's right. Of, uh, having the pictures taken and whatnot. Yeah. See, I've had a few conversations since I left last night, and so I have to keep this in mind. And I and I and I've said uh, to the Passarellas on two, uh, two occasions already that I should have added. You know, I'm you know answering off the coffin, you leave stuff out. But I should have added. I do believe the state has the right to punish those acts that are committed that the pornographers are dealing with. Absolutely. And so, and in that, of course, you strike at the head of the snake and the body's going to die too. Um, all I'm getting at is the state has no right to regulate the reading material of its citizenry. And I have to be, um, you know, I have to be pretty categorical about that because the minute you make exceptions, the state will take any exception to accomplish what it wants to. And so, if there is pornography out there to see or to read, so forth. I deplore it, preach against it, and all these other methods of disciplining I believe in, but I don't think the state should tell people whether they can or cannot. But yes, if, if a couple are engaged in an act that would call for the death penalty, if we if they can be caught and tried, they ought to be executed. Mike. Uh, great.
1: Concerning the regulative principle, how can, first of all, is the distinction that's made for evidence? frequently made in discussions about the regulative principle in terms of worship concerning uh, elements of worship versus incidentals, at least that's one way that it's put. Uh, is that even a legitimate kind of distinction to begin with? How do, and, and, and how do we know it? And is it really biblical or is it a construct that uh, perhaps uh, we've erected? Uh, can, can we say this is an incidental, but this is the element of worship? You uh, kind of get the gist of where that's going.
0: Yeah, although the distinction is not incidental because uh, well, that that creates an impression of this discussion that's really skewed. It's a question of what are the elements of worship and what are the means of worship? Okay, the way in which those elements are carried out. Um, and yes, you have to draw the distinction because uh, there's an interesting logic here on the regulative principle. I take a minute to explain it, then I can maybe answer your question. Uh, God says you may not approach me according to your own imagination. Because of who I am, you can only come to me in the way that is pleasing to me, and therefore you have to know what I want in order to approach me. And so God has already defined a certain area of life that he's governing in a way that's the opposite of the way he governs the rest of life. Can you realize that? because the Bible teaches us that everything God has created is good and is not to be refused. So that, with respect to most things, God says it's good unless I say otherwise. However, now God is saying something is bad unless I say otherwise. So you already know that he has carved out some aspect of human behavior that is being treated differently than he treats everything else. And so that's why we distinguish between those things which are part of worship, that carved out area that God says you can only do it my way, and those things which are not part of it. That's the basis for the distinction. If you didn't draw that distinction, then the regulative principle would actually um, forbid us, it would keep us from worshiping at all. Because if you didn't draw that distinction, there's nothing in the Bible that tells you to worship on, um, what's the next Lord's Day, April the ninth okay there's nothing in the bible that says to worship on april the ninth in the state of texas united states of america and if everything we do is to be regulated by this principle and we don't have any authorization to worship on this date in this place then people of god would be in sin for coming together i mean this isn't a reductio you out to show you why you must draw the distinction but with respect to those things that have religious significance that are part of worship. They can only be things which God has ordained. And that helps us to um, answer what in some places is kind of a a difficult question, a sticky question. I hope I haven't gotten in trouble here. If, if this turns out to have any history for you all, forgive me. I don't know that it does. and so I was in a church in Jackson, Mississippi, which is a, a PCA church for a few years. and. Uh, was very close as a friend with the pastor and the pastor of that church held a view that I don't happen to hold but I and didn't keep us from being good buddies and so forth but he held the view that uh, with respect to his own family he didn't want them to be celebrating Christmas okay because he he didn't see it as a biblically ordained holiday and uh, so forth and so on so he saw the regular principle as forbidding it but he didn't try to get everyone, I mean, anybody wanted to know about it in the church, he'd share his opinion, but he, wasn't, he didn't preach that people in the church didn't celebrate Christmas, but his family did not. And out of respect for his convictions, the elders did not put up a Christmas tree in December in the uh, auditorium. Now, some people were very angry with him about that, and they left the church over it he would not celebrate Christmas and they didn't have a congregation Christmas tree, congregational Christmas tree. Now, this provides on both sides an interesting application of the regulative principle. Was my pastor friend correct that Christmas is a violation of the regulative principle? I'd say no. It's not a violation of the regulative principle because it's not part of worship, Or to the degree that it's brought into worship, it's just part of the freedom we have to have days of thanksgiving, which our confession of faith speaks of and the Bible abundantly warrants. So we can have a day of thanksgiving and the thing we thank God for is the incarnation. Now granted, in our culture, Christmas has become all kinds of crazy other things, but there's no reason why we are committed to all those other things just because we have a day where we thank God for the incarnation. So I disagree with my pastor friend. He's wrong to think that it's a violation of the regulative principle. But the people who left the church over it, he was right about. It.